The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. God, we come before you right now. We're, we're broken. And uh, we lift up, first of all, just the, the city of Houston. We, we pray for the churches that are there, that they would have the right um, actions, the right words, the right motivations uh, to minister to all the families that are involved in this uh, this uh, situation in Houston. We pray, God, for um, an end to that kind of violence. We pray for protection um, over our schools and our kids. And we pray for that, Lord. We also pray for, um, for Gary. pray that you lift his spirits. We pray that for him and Bev. We pray for uh, healing. God, I pray that they go in and they do some scans and they find that there's no cancer. We pray for, for healing for him. Uh, Real physical healing. We pray that you would uh, give doctors wisdom there and make this second round of, of chemo successful. We also lift up uh, the Smith family. We pray for um, your comfort, your peace. We pray they would see you as their shield. They would see you as a good God. And we pray that the, uh, the body of Christ would Surround them uh, now, and they would sense your presence through the body. And uh, we pray that um, you bring about healing. We know it's going to take a while. We pray that you bring about healing. Help them to know and be able to trust you, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for praying. So we are continuing in uh, the book of John. We'll be in John chapter 8 this morning. And here's where we are in the book of John. We're in a section of John where uh, Jesus has been ministering in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to some Gentiles. And uh, if you look through the first section of John in chapters 5 to 10, there is this mounting opposition with the Pharisees and Jesus. And it's starting to get pretty intense. And this continues in chapter 8 where we're going to be today. And so here's the setting of the passage today. We're at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And the Feast of Tabernacles was, the point of it was uh, to help the Israelites remember the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after the Exodus. Jewish families would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would live in tents for seven days. So all over Jerusalem, you'd have people living in tents for seven days to celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles. So think of it as camping, but with spiritual significance. Now, I'm not really a big camping person. Um, Let's plan a vacation where everything is more difficult than normal. (laughs) That's not my idea of a vacation. But they would set up these tents all over Jerusalem. And the point of it was, as things were more inconvenient for them, was to remember, and to remember who God was and that God provided for them in the wilderness when they were wandering there for 40 years. This was one, when you read the descriptions of this feast, it sounds really fun, minus the camping part. But they would have singing and music and dancing and feasting for seven days. I mean, this puts Thanksgiving and Christmas to shame. 
and they would just have this huge celebration. And every night there was a ritual. In one of the courtyards, there were these tall candelabras, and they would fill these things with oil. And at the top, they would take old priestly undergarments, so priestly underwear, and they would use them as wicks. There is a joke in there somewhere. I can't find it, but it's in there somewhere. And they would do this every night. This would happen. And there would be this light that would emanate from the Temple Mount all over Jerusalem. The Feast of Tabernacles was to help them remember who God was as he provided for them in the wilderness. And this light would shine forth all over the city and it would be like a beacon on a hill. And so it's in these, this setting where Jesus says the words of John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Does that not gain new meaning when you know the context, what, he's, what, he's, what setting he's talking into? That he is the light of the world? Jesus doesn't just grab this metaphor out of thin air. He, to the Jewish mind, this would have had great meaning. We see this metaphor of light all through Scripture. What was the first thing that God created? Genesis. This is an easy question. Light. And whenever he, they're in the wilderness, remember God, God led the Israelites by day. He led them with a cloud. By night, he led them with a pillar of fire. And so he literally was their light, their protection, their provision in the wilderness. The Israelites would have grown up singing Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? We still sing that song today. They would have read Psalm 119 where it says, Your your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They would have understood Isaiah 49.6 where God says of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. So what does Jesus mean when he says he's the light? He's the fulfillment of all these passages. And if you notice in the text, he doesn't just bring the light. It says he is the light. And this is really important. Because following Jesus is not just an escape from darkness. But he is the light that brings the life. He is the light that brings life. For those who follow him, they don't just see light. They have the light. They possess it. Notice the, the phrase. Is they, they, have, they will have the light of life. They possess it. When you look at the physical world, you know when there is no light, there is no life. The same is true of us spiritually. When there is no light, there is no life. From the time we are young, I think this is true for most of our experiences. If you have small kids or even grandkids, you know they are born with this propensity to not like darkness. And they have invented nightlights to help kids deal with this fear. So we know kids don't like darkness from a young age. And, uh, but most of us try to avoid darkness for the most part. But there are exceptions to this. How many of you have been in a cave... 
and gone to visit a cave and they turned the lights out for about 30 seconds. That's a terrifying experience. And you can't see the hand in front of your face. And all you can think when that happens is, can somebody please turn on the lights? You crave light when you're in this pitch black darkness. There is a show that just came on a discovery called Darkness. And uh, this is the show, the concept. They put three men in a cave in Arkansas where there is absolutely no light. This, and they go to the inner recesses of this cave. And the, the, ga- the, the, the show is these men trying to find their way over the course of six days in the midst of this bat and spider and snake-infested cave, find each other, and then find their way out. That's the show. Which makes me ask the question, where do they find these contestants? (laughs) What is wrong with people? I mean, go run a marathon. But this is the show. And what's interesting is one guy... Your brain is used to seeing things. So for six days, they have infrared cameras, so they can't see anything, nothing. But they're filming this thing, they have infrared, a way of infrared, like, to get on camera. And this one guy starts hallucinating because your brain is used to seeing things. And if it can't see for six straight days, your brain starts making stuff up. And he begins to hallucinate. When you are in this kind of darkness, you have a craving for the light. The problem is the people that Christ is talking to here, they don't know they're in darkness. And when you don't know you're in darkness, you don't appreciate the light. You begin to see things and make stuff up. You begin to spiritually hallucinate when you don't realize you're in darkness and disconnect from reality. This might explain their reaction in verse 13 where it says, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Many writers will say the book of John plays out like a courtroom scene. We see that that play out, I think, in this part of the passage. Jesus' statement gains the attention of the Pharisees, and they begin to prosecute him. And he turns the tables and begins to prosecute the Pharisees. There's a continuation of the dispute in John chapter 5. In that section, Jesus calls several witnesses, John the Baptist, his own works, and the scriptures themselves. In this section, he calls two more witnesses, 
himself and God the Father. When Jesus and God the Father are your two primary witnesses, you've got a pretty good case. And he appeals to their law. Look at verse 17 where it says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. He's referring back to Deuteronomy where in the Jewish law needed two to three uh, witnesses to make a case. And Jesus says, we have witnesses, and it's myself, and it's God the Father. So he uses their own law to refute their claims that he's not who he says he is. Look at verse 15 again, where it says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Now, if you stopped right there, there are many that would read that and say, see, no one should judge, Jesus never judges. But then you read verse 16. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So which is it? Does Jesus judge or not? Well, to figure this out, we have to understand what way, in what way were the Pharisees judging? Jesus says they are judging according to the flesh. This means external. This means from the outside. This means external piety, according to man's understanding. And when Jesus says he judges no one, that means he does not judge according to the flesh in the way the Pharisees do. When we ask if Jesus came to judge, the answer is yes and no. He doesn't judge how the Pharisees do. He does not come to bring final judgment like he will one day. So in what way does Jesus judge? In John chapter 3, flip over there to John chapter 3, verse 19. These are the words of Jesus. John three nineteen. And this is judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. When light comes in contact with darkness, there's an inherent judgment. When, if I have a dark room and I bring a light into that room, there's an inherent exposure of the darkness. There's an inherent expulsion, an expelling of the darkness because of the light. When light comes in contact with darkness, there is an inherent judgment. And when you look at the text, Jesus still calls darkness, darkness. He still calls light, light. He still calls evil, evil. There's this popular idea today that we should never judge anyone or anything. We live in a culture where the only sin is to call something sin. And it's true, we should not be judgmental. We should not be condemning. But we still have to acknowledge light and darkness. The most misquoted verse in the Bible is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. And you know what verse that is. Do you know what verse it is? Say it to me. What is it? Judge not lest you be judged. Everyone knows that verse. 
Everyone's got it memorized. Christian, non-Christian, everybody knows Matthew 7.1. They even know the part that comes later, which says, remove the what? The log out of your own eye. But the problem is, they don't know what comes next, which is, remove the log out of your own eye so that you can what? Remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Everyone leaves that part out. Because there's still a speck in your brother's eye that needs to be removed. And it's true, we should not be judgmental or condemning, but we have to still be able to judge the way that Jesus judges. John chapter 7, verse 24 says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. We don't judge how Pharisees judge, but we are called to judge how Jesus judges. And you might say, well, that that sounds nice. I mean, how do you really apply that to a real-life situation? Well, here's the good news, is we have John 8, earlier passage. There's a woman who was caught in adultery. And the Pharisees bring her to Jesus. And we have a perfect example of what it looks like to judge how Jesus judges. So here's what it looks like. It looks like being kind and compassionate while still calling sin, sin. Christians have to do both. We must do both. The most compassionate and kind thing that you and I can do is to call sin, sin. It is not kind or compassionate to skirt sin. That would be lying. And lying is not a compassionate thing to do. So it looks like being kind and compassionate while still calling sin, sin. It looks like standing between a woman and those people who want to stone her. And being willing to take the rocks if it's necessary in her place. This is what it means to to judge how Jesus judges. Remember, Jesus didn't condemn her. He said, I don't condemn you, but he says, go and sin no more. He still called it sin, but he didn't condemn her. You see, Jesus being the light isn't some just positive-sounding platitude that Jesus will brighten your day. But when you think of light and Jesus being the light, The light of the world exposes darkness, but it also gives life. It gives life. So in one sense, the light exposes our sin, like it did for this woman, but it's also the light that gives life. And we see that in John chapter 8. I want you to look down at verse 21, John 8, 21. So he said to them again, 
I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So where is he going? Well, he's going to be with the Father. He's going away. And they're going to keep looking for a Messiah, but they're not going to find another one. And as this conflict has risen with the Pharisees, these are his strongest words. Jesus cannot be more clear. Someone who dies without believing that he is God, they will die in their sin. They will die eternally separated from God if they don't acknowledge that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. The response to his identity determines our ultimate destiny. And I want you to notice something in this text. The word sin is singular. It's not plural. And the reason for that, their greatest sin is their rejection of Jesus. Their greatest sin is unbelief. R.H. Mounts says it this way. Unbelief is the essential sin that expresses itself in all sorts of sins. Back in late January, we had a uh, situation. I came back from uh, the men's conference, and I came into the Outback, our youth building, and there was a young man there. Um, I caught the tail end of our service in the Outback that Sunday. And there was a young man I've been praying for for a couple of years to come to know Jesus. He walks up to me and he says, I want to start following Jesus. And I began to weep. He began to weep. We had a big weep fest. And we sit down and he prays to receive Jesus. Puts his faith and trust in Jesus. And it's a joyous occasion. And he begins to share about just some sin struggles and some things that are causing a lot of guilt and shame in life. And, and he later got baptized about two weeks ago. And in that conversation back in January, I said to him, listen, your, your biggest sin is not the sins you're struggling with. Your biggest sin has been unbelief. And up till now, Jesus has taken care of that sin. If he, can, if he can cure your sin of unbelief, he can cure your sins. And so for the Pharisees, their biggest belief, their biggest sin was unbelief. Whenever we think of darkness, we think of sins like the adulterous woman or the sins of Las Vegas. But notice this. In this text, Jesus is talking about light and darkness with the most pious and religious people of the day. Because there's a darkness in self-righteousness. There's a darkness in religiosity. There's a darkness in believing that I can attain and work my way to salvation. There's a darkness there. And when you look through the whole book of John, do you ever notice Jesus' miracles? They actually have a point. In John chapter 9, he heals a blind guy. You think that might be tied back into John chapter 8, where he's talking about light and darkness? Because in John chapter 9, he heals a blind guy to point out the blindness of the Pharisees. So whenever Christ does a miracle, he does it with a purpose of the point. And he's doing that here in John 8 and John chapter 9. I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I think this is a relatable issue. 
One question people ask all the time is, what about those who never hear? What about those who never hear about Jesus? What about those people? And it's a legitimate question. I understand it. I've wrestled with it myself. But the question makes some assumptions. If people just had the right information, they'd make the right decision. If they could just have the right access to the information, they would make the right decision. The only problem with that is whenever you open up the Bible and you see in the Old Testament, the Israelites, who had unfettered access to God in all of His power and all of His glory, they see miracles firsthand. They see His hand of provision for 40 years in the wilderness. And yet, what do they do? They turn their back on God and worship idols. New Testament, the Pharisees have personal access to Jesus, the Son of God. They see Him do miracles all the time. They witness them. They hear His profound teaching. And yet, all they want to do is argue with Him and try to prove that He's not who He says He is. I think this points out a really important issue that mankind does not have an information problem. Mankind has a heart problem. And Jesus points this out, I think, in this story. Look at verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So what does he mean by lifted up? There's a double meaning here. It means lifted up like on the cross, but also lifted up like resurrection. So how are they going to know he's a son of man? Well, it's hard to argue with a resurrection. What more proof do you need? There's a resurrection. I want you to look at verse 30 again. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. My passage was supposed to end right there. I took a little bit more of the next chunk here. But it sounds like a happy and joyous ending, right? He says what he's going to say, and, they, and many believe in him. But this is not the case when you read on in John chapter 8. Look at John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. And we could preach a whole sermon on just John 8, 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had, believed in, who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you read on, as we read next week, many didn't really have true faith. Maybe they had an intellectual belief, but no heart faith. For some, their belief proved false. What separates true faith from false faith is this word abide. This word abide is the, is the Greek word is meno, which means to stay or to continue in, to remain. And this is so important that you understand how this word is used in this passage. This is talking about obedience. The structure of this verse is so important because it says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples, 
and you will know the truth. You might say it like this, abiding leads to knowing. Most of us get this reversed. We think, I've got to figure this out. I've got to know everything. I've got to put it all together and wrap it up with a bow, understand it fully. Then I can decide to obey or I can decide to abide. But in this text, you see it's very clear. No, abiding leads to knowing. I think of my high school students that are about to graduate or current college students, or if you're just a skeptic and you're sitting here in the room, I think of you when I think of this concept. True knowledge never comes unless you personally commit. You are looking for knowledge. You're looking for all the reasons and intellectual um, ideas And some of those conversations are very, very important. But before you make a decision, if you're going to truly know, you have to abide. You have to commit. You have to commit in faith. And I told my students last service, I said, obviously, at this stage of life that they're in, high school and then even college, it's the the time of life where you want to test the waters of knowledge with disobedience. You want to dip your toe in and and test it out and see, is all this stuff really true? And so you want to test the waters of knowledge with disobedience. And I encourage anyone in that place to test the waters of knowledge with obedience. And you abide. You stay. You continue in. You remain. This leads to a greater form of knowing than you ever could apart from abiding in him. D.A. Carson says, holding to Jesus' teaching not only establishes the genuineness of faith, it also has its own authenticating power. We come to know the truth not simply by intellectual assessment, but by moral commitment. So take, for example, sexual purity. If someone is single, the challenge is to be sexually pure. If someone's married, to be maritally faithful to someone. When someone chooses to be sexually pure, obedience leads to a greater appreciation, a greater valuing of what God has said. You understand it in a real-life way. Abiding leads to knowing. Abiding, choosing to obey leads to a greater understanding and a valuing of what God has said. And you value it. You know it in a way that you would never know it apart from obedience. We can't just stand back and examine Jesus intellectually, but then never commit. That's not how it works. I saw recently the movie The Case for Christ. Anyone seen that movie? It's actually really, really good. I really enjoyed it. Really powerful. It's a movie that details the the life of Lee Strobel. He was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune many, many years ago. And he was an atheist. And his wife became a Christian and began talking about the Christian faith. And he spent months trying to disprove the Christian faith. Then he becomes a Christian. 
And now he's a seminary professor. Now he is a pastor at a church. And has written over 20 books supporting the Christian faith. But in the movie, you realize at some point he realized, I can't just look at everything intellectually. At some point, I've got to make a decision. At some point, I have to commit. Because abiding leads to knowing. Another idea we see in this text, truth is not just a proposition. Truth is a person. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the truth. He says, I am the way, the the truth, and the life. Truth is not just a proposition. Truth is a person. In our Western world, we see truth only as propositional statements, but in the text, we see that truth is relational. Truth is always relational. We only know truth if we commit to the one who is truth. And once we trust Jesus at a personal level, what does that lead to? Well, in verse 32, it says it leads to freedom. We live in a culture that doesn't believe in truth with a capital T. Look at the words of this skeptic and how they say it. Christians believe they have the absolute truth that everyone else has to believe or else. That attitude endangers everyone's freedom. In our culture right now, we don't believe in truth. We would never say that knowing truth sets us free. Most would say true freedom is to throw off the shackles of supposed truth and live how you want. We would say freedom is living how you want. But this is really a shallow view of freedom. I tell my students this all the time. That is a very shallow view of freedom. Freedom is much more complex than that. I think of uh, basketball star Steph Curry who on the court is one of the greatest shooters probably of all time. And the way he got to this place is he has an insane practice regimen. So he will take 100 three-point shots after practice on a given day. And out of the 100 shots he will take in practice, he will often make 94 or 95 three-point shots out of 100. One time he made 77 in a row. This guy is good. So Steph Curry, the way that he's gotten so good at basketball is he submits to the rules of hard work. He limits his freedom in one area of his life. He submits to the rules of hard work and practice, regimen, and dieting, and time. He limits his freedom in one area of his life so he can be free in a whole nother way on the basketball court. It opens up a whole new realm of freedom possibilities on the court. He can jack a three-point shot with someone in his face and it swish. He can set himself up for create space where someone else thinks he's going, he goes the other way and he creates space and he makes a shot. It creates a whole new other kind of freedom for him as he skillfully uses his God-given ability on the court. So he limits his freedom in one area of life and opens up a whole new freedom and, and, and world of possibility on the court. I think there's an analogy here for us. When we submit ourselves 
to Jesus. And we limit our freedoms, as the world might call them. It opens up a whole other realm of freedom that we don't even know about that God has for us. Many of you think that freedom is getting to do what you want, but freedom is discovering how God wants you to live and then living that way. Freedom is not creating your own truth. Freedom is submitting to the truth. J.D. Greer says, Our culture says freedom is having no master. Jesus would say freedom is having the right master. So I want to invite you to respond this morning. Maybe you're sitting here and you're a skeptic. You're not a believer yet. You're a skeptic. This morning I want you to understand that in the text, if you go on and read the rest of this text, you'll, you'll see that sin is slavery. And I think you know that. There's something in you that knows that. Sin is slavery. And what seems like freedom to you right now is really slavery. And what seems like slavery, following Jesus, is really true freedom. Maybe you're someone who's been a Christian for a long time, and you're just bored. You've just grown weary in your faith. You don't even like being a Christian at this point in your life. There's no joy in it. And the message, I think, for you this morning is remember that he is the light that brings life. Following him is not a half-life. He's the light that brings life life. Psalm 36.9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Annie Johnson Flint summarized this verse this way. She says, God is the source of all that his people need for the challenges of life. From his limitless supply flows a never-ending stream of strength, wisdom, and guidance. He gives more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he adds mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. His love has no limit. His grace, no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus... He gives, and he gives, and he gives again. Father, we're um, thankful that you came as the light. We're thankful that you came as the light that gives life. God, may anyone in this room that is a believer or not a believer yet, that they would not see you as life-taking, but life-giving. They would not see you as joy-taking, but joy-giving. I pray for anyone in this place this morning that may not know you. They'd put their faith and trust in you, knowing that you are the light that exposes darkness, knowing that you are the one who truly gives freedom, that you're the one who gives us life. We pray this in your name. Amen.